0: Welcome to Deep Focus, a radio show about movies and New Haven. I'm your host, Tom Breen. On today's interview-only episode of the show, we'll be talking all about Tony Conrad, Completely In the Present, a new documentary about an influential, often overlooked New York artist who was a pioneer in, in so many things, in musical minimalism in the late 1950s, in experimental underground filmmaking in the 1960s, in pushing the democratic bounds of public access TV in the 90s and 2000s, and in many other areas of anti-authority creativity besides. I'll be joined by director Tyler Hubby. Is that, I should have asked how to pronounce your name before we started, Tyler, but does that sound right to you?
1: That sounds right to me.
0: Okay, great, so I'll be joined by director Tyler Hubby, whom you just heard, and local New Haven filmmaker, Brennan Toller to talk about Hubby's new movie, which Toller will be screening at Lyric Hall in Westville tonight, Thursday, June 29th at 7 p.m. as part of a new documentary series he's putting together for that venue. So without further ado, I'm very happy to welcome to the show Tyler Hubby and Brennan Toller. Hubby is the writer, director, editor, and producer of the new doc, Tony Conrad, Completely in the Present. And Toller is a New Haven-based documentary filmmaker and the director of another music doc about a key player in 1960s New York counterculture, Danny Says. Tyler, Brennan, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here.
1: Thank you for having me over the internet.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for having me in person here, Tom, on Deep Focus again. It's great.
0: So and it's great to have you back. So Tyler, I've got maybe an unfairly broad question to start, but uh, for people who are not already familiar with Tony Conrad, Tony Conrad, uh, who who is he? Who was he? And and why did you want to make a movie about him?
1: Uh, well, maybe I can answer the question with the other question. Uh, the <laughs> uh, he's he's a fascinating American artist who I think had a hand in a lot of different movements. And because he was more interested in making the work than in promoting the work, he was not really well known outside of a small circle of people and and maybe some of his students. Uh, and But even many of his students didn't know about his art career. Or he didn't even really have an art career. He hated the word career. He didn't want to have a career, you know? So this was sort of the problem in trying to identify him as an artist. And I had met him when I was... 25 years old in the nineties, early nineties. Um, and, uh, became really fascinated with this body of work that nobody really knew about. And his music ended up sort of becoming the soundtrack of my adult life as I was sort of joking with friends that one day I'd make a Tony Conrad documentary with all this material that I had been filming, uh, since the nineties, when I met him, uh, I sort of crash landed into his universe, uh, as a videographer for a lot of his, uh, musical performances that he was doing starting in the 90s when he was really reemerging as a musician. Um, so I... it was sort of a combination of those things. Like, well, I, I had all this material, and I also felt like this work is really interesting and important and seminal and foundational in a lot of ways, and yet nobody really knew about it. I mean, you can go back and go through all of the great books on experimental film, and he's a footnote in, like, two of them. It's very odd, um, but so I, I just sort of felt that it was time to sort of just put this work and the man behind the work just kind of back into history where, where he should be understood.
0: You know, I love that you say that uh, hit that Conrad's music became the kind of soundtrack to your late 20s because... Uh, I think it is a soundtrack that would be very different than that of other people into uh, kind of 1960s uh, kind of nascent rock and roll and counterculture in that Tony Conrad's music uh, is, um, you know, predicated on very long, very minute changes in uh, kind of a, a single chord or a single note as held over the period of you know, 20, 30 minutes sometimes. And, you know, one uh, early on... And very loud. And very loud. And right, and this is also... I mean, I'm interested to hear your take on how, you know, Conrad's music... Uh, kind of feels and is absorbed through recordings versus the live experience which seems to be so important for the art that he's trying to produce but early on in the movie um a, a fellow a musician and musical collaborator of his named jim o'rourke says that you know one thing that he really loved about tony is that he had his own completely unique sound and that you know when you talk about trumpet players there are trumpet players then there's miles davis there's piano players and then there's cecil taylor and then there's Tony Conrad and he doesn't even uh, ascribe a, an instrument to me. I guess violin would probably be the best instrument to say they're violin players and then Tony Conrad. But, uh, I mean, what in your, you know, eyes and, and ears, what distinguishes Tony Conrad's let's let's start with music. What, what distinguishes his music from, uh, from other musicians that may act as the soundtrack for someone in their late twenties?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, most of this music that we're talking about now is pretty much considered drone music. Um, but there was a very specific way that he was approaching drone music and some of it's pretty technical and I'm, I'm not the right person to describe all the math that goes into it. Even Jim O'Rourke, when I spoke to him said, I don't understand the math. I mean, for anyone who knows Jim O'Rourke, most people know him as a pretty brilliant multi-instrumentalist and producer and, and kind of a musical savant, if you will. And he'll be the first one to tell you he doesn't understand Tony's math. Um, so there's a lot of that involved, but, um, uh the, the sort of uh the the layperson's, uh, uh, understanding of it is that he's really working with harmonics and the way harmonics and volume build on each other so you know like if you get a frequency going through a lot of amplification and then you add other uh sort of corollary frequencies to that they start to multiply themselves right so um so it's just about, you know, it's in some ways, it's just sine wave theory, you know, just put through Marshall full stacks <laughs> <laughs> you know? and, um, um, and because he uses using a violin and he had a very specific way of tuning that violin, uh, uh, there is a sort of signature sound. I mean, no one really sounds like Tony Conrad and, and, uh, and he varied this thing and he would play with, uh, cellists and, and other string musicians. And, and he also used, uh, you know, looping tools and things like this, so he could he could sort of quite literally amplify his own sound and make it sound like you know you watch you you know you'd see his performance you'd think how is one guy making this much sound, uh, and that was part of the that was part of the trick to it.
0: You know, I think and my uh, I think my response to the music is maybe best uh, described by one of your kind of featured Talking Heads in the movie Moby uh, when he says that. Uh, Tony Conrad's music for him just kind of slows down his metabolism, uh, and and I think that that gets uh, so well at what Tony Con- Conrad was trying to do in almost all facets of his art, which was to have a uh, a kind of physical and like physiological impact upon the person and the people watching it. It's not just a matter of enjoying or trying to understand what's happening, but your body actually kind of changing what's coming at you and brendan i want to bring um, you into the conversation because this this movie and thinking about tony conrad was so interesting uh in juxtaposition with your own movie about danny fields uh, called danny says another guy who was you know in this you know uh this downtown new york kind of emerging rock counterculture scene and yet i feel like there could not be two more more different and more similar people (laughs) one they're both kind of born storytellers they're both very funny in very kind of dry and sardonic ways uh danny is a like a connector of people whereas tony is constantly trying to drive people away from his art (laughs) like sometimes a successful work of art for tony is like an empty room at the end of it but I, i think the most uh illustrative example for me of the difference between the two is uh how both of your movies touch on the velvet underground uh in in uh in Tyler's movie, uh, Tony's relationship to the velvet underground is one where he is working with John Kale and he's kind of, he's a bit surprised and dismissive of Kale when he decides to pursue rock and roll because it's almost, it's too like accommodating the mainstream. And then in Danny says, we hear about how, you know, the early velvet underground exploring, um, performances were the most like alienating experiences in the world. Like they're just flashing lights at you. They're trying to drive. And it's like, not a, not a negative thing, but it's a very abrasive thing. Um, did uh well one i guess did tony make it did tony make his way into Danny Says at all is he part of the scene that you were researching and and what do you think of the comparison between these two these two guys
2: no but uh no i i never uh really spoke one-on-one with tony but uh i came across him and his art at hampshire college in 2000 february 2005 he gave a uh, lecture series he was there all week so he screened his films you know, films, video work, and then he also did, um, you know, performances as well. And, uh, you know, I was just like this uh, dopey white middle class kid from the, you know, Connecticut suburbs. And uh, I was I was really into rock and roll. I, I didn't really know much about experimental music or art. And uh, I wasn't necessarily liking a lot of the music that I was hearing up in that area. Uh, but once I saw him, it all kind of clicked, and I, I know it clicked for a lot of other people too. Because uh, when Tony had passed, uh, uh, maybe a year ago or two years ago, um, a lot of people that were at those performances said that it was totally life changing. Um, can, can you identify what it is? His that music. With well, I think it was what you were touching on before. I mean, his music and art. Um, are a totally different approach from what m- we know as and are kind of used to as like mainstream pop or art consumers, right? I mean, it is experimental, but it's also the kind of access he lends his um, music and art and films to. Um, you know, he has that quote in the trailer, and it says, "Screw abstract art. I'm going to make art funny, happy, energetic, and joyful." Um, you know, I think a lot of times with the experimental um expression, whether it be in painting or cinema or uh any any medium, it it takes itself a little too seriously. Whereas Tony's is totally filled with, you know, energy and joy. And uh it's usually, you know, some sort of acerbic, you know, kind of humor. And uh it just left a profound impact on me because uh it's a different way of seeing, a different way of hearing. Uh, but it's without any sort of pretension. And I think that's, you know, credit to you, Tyler. Um, the the film really covers all of all of his sort of uh, artistic output in a, in a way that's um, accessible and also allows, you know, viewers to really discover his contributions to the world at large.
0: Tyler, can, can you riff on that for a little bit for us? Because I, I know that you've spoken about this in, in previous interviews. I was reading one that you gave with the website, uh, the streaming site Mubi, in that one of the challenges you set for yourself was creating a, you know, a pretty standard feature length, 90, 95 minute, pretty straight, not, well, I don't know, straightforward documentary, but a, a, comprehends, a comprehensible and approachable movie about a very challenging artist, an artist whose career spanned, I guess, five decades. Um, of making very, if not always abrasive, you know, very avant-garde film, music, uh, installation art. Uh, how how did you seek to, um, I don't know, wrap your head around all of this work and present it in a, you know, pretty straightforward, approachable manner, as Brendan's describing?
1: Well, you know, I had a lot of internal battles about that going in because I think there was a I had I had a strong inclination to make a, a an impenetrable three and a half hour long film that would be notorious for the fact that nobody could actually have ever sat through it. <laughs> uh, I'll
2: then, I'll see that one, sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I would have watched it. I mean, listen, I, the assembly was nearly that long, and you know nobody could sit through it, including myself. But. Um, So there was that, you know, I thought, well, that would be be like the biggest kind of F you and it would be sort of in keeping with the spirit. And then then I thought, well, no, you know, in a way that's just imitative and dogmatic. And actually the most subversive thing I could do would be to make the film in the form of a Trojan horse that looks like an and and gives the outward appearance of a kind of normal documentary. (laughs) And and but is but is loaded with all of this imagery and and kind of political philosophy and 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 is coded with other kind of visual signifiers and stuff like that because I thought well if you, you know if I wanted to seduce a generation of young people that's the way I would do it so um, that's kind of what I was thinking about you know like what is the film that I would have wanted to see when I was eighteen or twenty you know and just kind of getting interested in art. And, and this is the kind of thing that I think I would have been really drawn to. Uh, and I did want to emphasize the humor, because I think that that's, you know, from somebody who comes from the experimental film community, um, I can say that humor is often lacking. <laughs> and, uh, and it can get really dry, and it can get very um, uh, <laughs> self-serious. And, but, you know, and Tony was aware of that as well and rejected it. I mean, a lot of people talked about The Flicker, you know, this famous film he did in 1966 as, uh, or 65 as, uh, you know, that's got the pulsing black and white frames. And people would talk about it as a landmark of structuralist film or whatnot. And he hated those labels. He didn't want to be affiliated, which is why he never really made more of those. He did that and he did the film Straight and Narrow, which is the alternating uh, black and white stripes with the soundtrack by John Cale and Terry Riley. Um, uh, which is an amazing film. It's like the most joyous, energetic film you could see about stripes. Um, <laughs> you know, I love it that. Really is that it uh, it. <laughs> that that humor
0: and you know that humor and lack of kind of self seriousness was not just something that uh, Tony grew into. You know, I was looking at this 1966 interview, I think, with uh, Village Voice critic critic Jonas Mekas in which they're talking about the flicker and and Mekas is asking about how the uh how the screening went and Tony says well I, I think someone threw up in the middle of it uh, and and you <laughs> know says is that a good thing and then he replies oh yeah that was you know if he had ate, ate something that was bothering his stomach now he's clear of that <laughs> for the rest of the day and then you know the projectionist said I have a photogenic migraine and Tony says well this movie helps you diagnose photogenic migraine um so go so going back to the point when he was actually creating this art that humor was coming through um but I I also love the idea of, of creating this Trojan horse because I think Tony's work really lends itself to that kind of subliminal immersion into a straightforward narrative in that with kind of blinking lights and with that droning hum, you can set that as the soundtrack and kind of mix, and you do mix that in into your documentary. I and mean, occasionally the documentary itself is just kind of flashing at you. And the first time I watched it, I had no idea what was happening. <laughs> I didn't know why the, <laughs> the image was blinking at me. I knew I liked it, but I thought, "What? Why is this happening? And what, what? does this have to do with Tony Conrad?" Um, I, I wonder if you could, you know, as a, as a longtime film editor yourself, could you tell us a bit about the the editing process for this, taking you know two decades worth of interviews and and more worth of you know Tony's own materials and and turning this into the movie that we have before us today.
1: Sure. I think the the trickiest thing was to figure out what works to include and why. Uh, We're talking about a 50-year career that deals with film, um, two-dimensional art, three-dimensional art, hours and hours of video stuff, television, and then all these music compositions. And I think uh, there's even the uh, quote from the curator, Jay Sanders, in the film talking about, like, you know, took a whole whole next generation to try to put this into a career and understand it as as an artistic path, right? And so that was kind of what I was dealing with in, in putting it together and trying to figure out these works. And the things that I had to kind of, like, in my own, meditations as it were go back and think about it's like well what what is really what is really going on with tony's work and what is really really at the root of it and at the root of it was um in some ways i felt that 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 tony was actually a really political artist who was using abstraction and minimalism as a form that could be triggering um for for the the experience of the audience and for that experience to be self-generated and for the audience to get a sense of empowerment of their own experience and to move away from dogma and to move away from dictation and figuration and stuff like this in film i mean that's the interesting thing about the flicker is no two people see the same film it sort of functions as an, as an optical and neural trigger Right, and, but everybody is different. We all see the movie differently. My experience of it is bound to be different than your experience of it, just for sheer biological reasons. Um, and uh, and we have to all come to our own experience of that. And, and a lot of that is happening with the music as well. We've talked about these performances. And one of the things that was kind of hard to do, when you talked about recordings, was in the mix of the film itself, the sound mix, You know, we, we tried to emulate the experience of a live concert as best as the, you know, with the, up to the technical limitations of what a 5.1 mix can actually hold. But the concerts that I saw in the nineties, those drone concerts were so loud and so enveloping that they did alter your perception of time. You know, that's that, that was the thing that you mentioned the Moby quote about is um, when you're in a 90 minute drone space that is so loud, you're feeling it vibrating your organs uh, your thought process slows down entirely, um, and 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 so that whole concept of time, you know, that he was playing with in, in durational works and the music and all this stuff, it, those were all in there as well. So I was looking at what is really sort of the political subtext of some of this work and how it sort of speaks to empowerment and 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 for the audience to really engage with their own experience. Yeah, I'd and love- then when I started started thinking about that, the work started to line up, and you start to see where, where that through line is. You
0: know, I'd, I'd love to sit with that uh, political angle for a second, but first, I want to remind listeners that you're listening to Deep Focus on WNHHLP, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm your host, Tom Breen, and I'm joined today by director Tyler Hubby uh, and local filmmaker Brennan Toller, and we're talking about Hubby's new movie, Tony Conrad, Completely in the Present, which will be playing at Lyric Hall later tonight, Thursday, June 29th. Um, Brendan, uh, I, I'm going to return to Tyler on the political aspect of, of Tony's kind of life and work, but I wonder if we can think about that in terms of uh, Danny Fields' life as well and what you respond to in in Tyler's movie. In that, I see Danny as a as a kind of surprisingly kind of unlikely political figure as well, and that he is. Uh, kind of unlike Tony Conrad, he is immersing himself in a more kind of traditional economy of music production, like getting a job at Electro Records and writing for these magazines that kind of dictate the taste for youth culture. But he's directing that kind of industry towards progressively more and more experimental and less like talent-based music uh and more you know stuff like the ramones right where it's all you know where danny beautifully says like you can never be terrible and great at the same time before the ramones and all of a sudden here with these guys um i wonder if you if you think of uh danny as um a political figure in any way and if the uh you know that anti-authoritarian aspect of tony's life and work is what draws you to this movie
2: well yeah i mean i think that that's something that uh hosts like yourself tom don't always give me the opportunity to talk about i actually think that you know a chief drive of me doing my work uh and that includes booking tyler's film tonight is is you know for political reasons um that culture is a way to sort of uh set your mind on fire new ways of seeing new ways of hearing new ways of thinking and if it's anything that's going to help save the world, well, it's probably that. I mean, I don't know that I'm going to run for office or uh, you know, would want to, but um, you know, sort of reshaping and forming people's minds, you know, you know, by ways of culture and expression, um I think is uh really interesting and important to me. So yeah, I always sort of saw Danny as a political figure, but you know if i ever brought that up in an interview he'd refute it and say no no way but i mean you know it just comes down to what he was interested in and uh, i'm sure for tony that that was it too he was probably interested in uh you know this sort of avenue of expression and um you know uh taking a a radical you know and different approach to composing and um art and film and uh you know, but again, I, I return to the the fact that it, it's also it's totally accessible. Um, it's not like from total left field, and and I, I think for anybody who sees this film or you know hears one of his records or sees one of his films, that it, you can really um, understand it, even if you're not you know well versed in I don't know experimental art or you know modern art or galleries <laughs> or whatever. Which is what's what's great. I mean, it's it's for everybody.
0: Tyler, I feel like unlike. Danny Fields, Tony was quite explicit about his political intentions in, I mean, this is a guy who picketed Lincoln Center and said that he wanted to end composing in and of itself because he thought composing was too kind of author- authoritarian a relationship between artists and audiences. Um, I, I wonder how, uh, bo- both as as a filmmaker, how do you you know spend so much time interviewing this artist, who you, who you clearly have a lot of respect for and a personal relationship with, how do you spend so much time talking with him and not let the person kind of dictate the story that you want to tell, or maybe maybe that's not a concern of yours, but I imagine there's some, you know, as someone documenting, as opposed to being just a friend of Tony, there's something that you're trying to extract from his life or tell about his life that may not always coincide one-to-one with the story that he's trying to tell about his life. But also what, what is the political message that you see coming from, you know, these five decades of art that, that Tony created?
1: Sure. Uh, You know, one of the things that was a central theme, I think, for a lot of dialogue with Tony and even in his writings, and you'll see it in the music, is this understanding of power relationships and who has the power and how do we as audience consumers, voters, uh, how do we give up our power and how do we claim power? You know, and, and we often too easily give up power. And who has power? And why do they have power and we don't have power? So all of these kinds of conversations about power relationships were things that were really interesting to him. And you saw it in his uh, collaboration and subsequent conflict with uh, his mentor, Lamont Young. Um, and, and the way that he used television and was sort of like subverting the news, you know, this idea that, you know, just because uh, uh, Igor Vamos from the Yes Men has that quote about just because somebody has a big camera and a van and they're from the Channel 13 doesn't mean they have power. You can, you can take a camera and make the news. Uh, and, and so, you know, he was really interested in, in, in challenging these ideas of established power. Who says they're powerful? Why are they powerful? Why does that person in charge, you know, and, and that was a big fundamental thing. And even when we were working together, uh, there was a sort of implicit understanding of this really dynamic and kind of changing power relationship between both he and I, right? Because it's like who, you know, when you're in a situation where somebody has a camera and somebody's on camera, who has the most power in that relationship? Is it the person with the camera Or is it the person who's on camera? And this would change all the time because Tony understood actually that it's the person who's on camera who has the power. And he would demonstrate that by walking off camera. (laughs) Or by
0: leaning into the camera, right? Constantly changing. Right.
1: And so, and so even those kinds of things that are subtly in the film, you know, and there were even interesting ideas, you know, that, that, like, we would never hide the apparatus of filming, which is something he sort of started thinking about a lot when he was doing the public access television in the 90s, is you don't hide the apparatus of filming. Uh, I mean, who are you fooling? We all know we're watching a film, right? So you know, so we, he would always leave his uh, lavalier, you know, mic wire dangling out of his pocket and hanging on his shirt. Eventually, he, he agreed to stop doing that after we broke a very expensive microphone. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to implore him to be like please tuck it in your shirt you know it's not it's not for aesthetic reasons it's just you're breaking the gear (laughs) (laughs) but you know so there was that even And, and 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 a lot of times these interviews i would come fully prepared for the day and have a series of questions and he would just decide he didn't want to talk about that and i had to kind of work with that you know i mean he could be obstinate and and uh contrarian i mean that's what's so interesting about him but at the same time it did pose a lot of challenges especially when we'd be out in the streets of new york and i'd say i want to go over there and do this whole thing over there and he'd think for a minute and say, yeah i don't want to do that let's go over here so i had to also think about ways to almost kind of trick him into doing what i wanted to do like i'd even just i stopped even preparing and, and staying up late at night worrying about you know, detailed stuff, questions or whatever, because I knew whatever I put out there, he would bat away like instinctually. So I was like, I'll just throw out dumb questions and those will just lead us down the path to where we need to get. I don't need to uh, work myself up with a lot of uh, uh, preparation, which is sort of a strange kind of way to, to work. But, um, but even that, I could tell how he was kind of toying with me and my expectations about, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to do all that. You don't have to prepare all that. Let's just figure out where this goes. And I'd made I've made the comment before that sometimes photographing him was like was like wildlife photography, you know. It was just I just had to make sure we had enough batteries and enough memory cards or tape actually to, to consider how long I started filming him just to keep going. You know, just keep going, just keep going. I don't know where he's going with this. Just keep going. Um, and eventually we'll wear him down or or he'll come into something that that happens uh the end the final scene of the film kind of came about that way and you,
0: you know, know i think he, the final scene is such a perfect example of what you're describing in that without i don't know giving too much away it's tony literally conducting traffic and showing the the <laughs> absolute absurdity of uh of this notion that people who are you know standing waving their arms uh because they're doing that action have control over what they're pur- purporting to Uh, to conduct Um, I imagine this is I mean this sounds like a very challenging way to to operate as a filmmaker like yourself I mean I I get that you know if your subject if you kind of have to come up with these different strategies to trick your subject into to letting you film him doing you know being himself and and out in the wild that is an easy way to rack up a lot of footage that then you have to kind of comb like did you were there moments when you're making this movie when you thought okay this is a I know that this is the part that I want to use, and so I don't have to watch the preceding 20 hours because it's just these last five minutes that, that is the, the goal.
1: Sometimes it was really obvious, and other times it wasn't. Sometimes there were very long interviews where uh, I glossed over an essential nugget and found it much later. I mean, that actually happens in every film that I've edited. You know, you read the transcripts, you, you think, you, you know, you go after the structure you think is going to work, and after months or a year or something of structuring the piece, you realize it's taken a different form and you go back and reread the interviews and there's all these hidden gems in there that you look, overlooked on the first pass. So that, that, that's just kind of a normal part of that process. But, um, but yeah, you know, just trying to reconcile this idea of uh, incorporating experimental film strategies in a, in a sort of, mm, subtle way you know into something that looks on the surface more like a conventional documentary i mean those were th- the kind of challenges i was mostly interested in like how do we sneak in some experimental sort of visual ideas into something that looks like a 95 minute portrait documentary yep. uh, without without sort of like you know overdoing it
0: <laughs> brendan we the last time we had you on the show you were here talking about uh jem cohen and peter Sillon's benjamin smoke uh mm-hmm. and also silver lake life and i think that benjamin smoke is another good example of a movie that one the filmmakers spent like 10 years working on right it's this long labor of love where you spend a lot of time with someone and keep, kind of piece together uh all of these different kind of representative uh images that you have uh, accumulated over your time with this person um but it's also you know a very uh, kind of interesting ambitious artistically kind of edited movie in that uh it's kind of elliptical it's it's not just a straightforward concert documentary or biopic it kind of matches the person at the center of it uh who is resolutely an an outsider and the movie in its way um it's it's kind of deceptively matches his um his outsiderdom it's not looking to be like other music docs and i wonder how you i mean how much your experience as a filmmaker jibes with what what uh Tyler is saying I mean does this sound familiar in terms of the relationship you have with your subjects the way that you have to kind of earn their trust or convince them or trick them into kind of t- talking or being comfortable enough that they're going to get to a point where if if they're not going to maybe not answer the questions that you have on your paper but they're going to answer some larger question you have about them um how how is this jiving with your own experiences as a filmmaker
2: yeah it's kind of exactly the same uh, <laughs> Tyler i was like silently laughing when you were talking about you know reading the transcripts and even that you, you think you know everything and you and then you watch some of the footage and know what was that and you could sort of glean over like yeah gems in, in a way and also just you know the the both, you know, if, if we had to compare um, the, the two subjects, um, yeah, they're both contrarian. So, uh, you know, I, I feel Tyler's, uh, I'm with you in solidarity there. Uh, there were many times where I would prep and, you know, want to talk about a certain thing. And then uh, they just go the complete opposite direction, uh, w- w- which is fine. You know, um, it's just uh, digital uh information that we're recording i guess but then you got to transcribe it and store it and back it up etc so uh you know there's a lot of energy going into it but um yeah uh, um
0: and how about how about the question about how how do you as a filmmaker guard against letting your subject kind of dictate exactly what you are going to be putting together as as your documentary is that something that you were thinking about as you're making danny says or were you just you know, well, the first couple
2: of years I was just like just trying to get the story down. So I, I it was really he dictated it. You mm-hmm. know, even down to what we would talk about that day. Sometimes it was an hour of him complaining about AT and T. Uh, you know, which wasn't exactly useful to <laughs> maybe to him, it was like a therapy session. I mean he would say that. But um you know, yeah. Um i lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. But no, but yeah.
0: piecing together the story was what made up. The, oh that yeah. I mean, eventually you sort of,
2: I think once you get to know your subject well enough and you spent enough time, you sort of see this through line or hopefully you do. I mean, that's, you know, I think the, the chief way people sort of construct docs is, is they have there is this kind of thread and through line that takes you through the story, um, and, you know, through time forwards and backwards. So, um, yeah. I mean, you know, I came to a point with Danny says where it was, you know, this is a story about a guy who invented himself, who helped invent a culture and helped other people invent themselves. And, you know, I mean, similar, I think Tony is somebody that um has, you know, sort of, I said it before, like just cracked people's brains open and like allowed them to see this whole new way of seeing and hearing.
0: Yeah, that's Actually, that's a great transition into the last question I have for both of you, which is this relationship that you are kind of drawing out in your movies between the individual subject and the movement or like movements that he is kind of uh, paradoxically both at the center of and on the outskirts of. What Danny says, Danny Fields is both, you know, he is this prime connector. He is connecting, you know, people in uh in the Andy Warhol scene and the CBGB scene he's he's bringing he's the early manager of the Stooges uh, of the Ramones he's not a musician himself but he is someone whom like every single one of these seminal musicians uh was somehow touched by and and Tony Conrad seems to be uh, in a kind of similar spot where he is you know at the center you know he's you um Tyler you talk about his relationship with Lamont Young and John Cale uh, in the, you know, forging an early minimalist sound. You talk about his relationship with Jack Smith uh, in experimental filmmaking in 1960s New York. Um, I, maybe I'll go to Brennan first and then over to Tyler. But, Brennan, how, uh, you know, now that you have, I know we, Danny Says, had its kind of theatrical premiere a, c- a couple months ago now, mm-hmm. and you've had maybe a little bit of time to, to reflect back on the movie. How, how do you see that, relationship between the person you're documenting and the scene of which he's a part do you feel like this you know this movie that you made is um a pretty good balance between the two is it leaning more towards a moment that this person is representative of or someone who defined you know the the trends of of early 1960s rock and roll or defined them
2: yeah i mean i it it was nice to get uh letters and words and validation from people who were around that time who people that you know i've held in high regard, um, not to drop any names, but I guess I will since I was just brought it up, but like, you know, like Lenny K was very supportive and Richard Howell wrote me this really long note that was really sweet. And, um, yeah, it just, it made me feel, I mean, the best thing that I would hear on the road was, you know, somebody's girlfriend or boyfriend would drag them to the movie and they would say, I didn't know anything about this. I hate this music but that guy was amazing and I was thoroughly entertained and thank you for making this movie. I mean, it's one thing for an audience member to come up to a, a filmmaker and and say nice job. I think even that takes a lot of courage for some people, but for somebody to come up and say that in city after city, it was really sweet. Um so yeah, I mean, uh but you know, there's there's other stories to be told with with within the that that scene for sure, but uh I was just so so glad uh, and similar to Tyler, I'm sure, that it, that this story was preserved and is out there for, you know, generations to come. The, the cliche is this, yeah.
0: And Tyler, tell me about uh, your kind of thoughts on, on Tony Conrad, both you know, in the context of his own work and also in this this movie that you've put together. Uh, how do you see, you know, his life as helping us understand a particular moment in modern musical history, filmmaking history, kind of experimental art history, and also how much his You know, are you documenting the unique eccentricities of this uh, individual artist?
1: I think the thing that's kind of really fun about Tony is is, uh, how many lives he actually really touched. You know, I mean, we we, we haven't really talked about the fact that he spent 35 years as a teacher. And, you know, what Brandon was saying about breaking minds open is sort of what his day job was. And... um, there's something really great there, and I wanted to just jump back really quickly. You know, As much as we talked about Tony being this contrarian and these ideas of control and power and game playing that might have been going on in, in the making of the film, Tony was ultimately one of the most collaborative artists that there was. Uh, and most of the people who are interviewed in the film collaborated with him. And that's why they came forward to talk about it, because he was always collaborative and super generous about understanding what your contribution was and what what are you doing. And he was always really interested in what everybody else was doing. There was almost a kind of self-negation, which is interesting, given his performance idiom of playing behind a veiled scrim. right? Um, you know, He didn't want to put that ego forward. He was always interested in what other people were doing. And and I was making this film and I, I, I was, you know, putting together these interviews and I was always feeling this kind of sadness that, you know, I had never gotten to really collaborate with him. And, and it wasn't until really recently that I realized that I did. Um, and that I would spent 20 years doing it. And then I made this and that this ultimately was a kind of collaborative work between us. I was sort of blind. I was just blinded by that the whole time. I didn't understand it. I was kind of like, "Why? Where's my collaboration with Tony?" Not realizing that I was <laughs> s- sitting on one of the biggest ones that existed. So, um, so there was that. I mean, and, and the thing is, that, you know, with Tony's sort of place in history, uh, it's quite a bit different. You know, it, it, he was profiled in I think Look magazine in the '60s as as the underground man. And he sort of remained that, uh, his entire life. You know, he didn't, he's not someone who emerged into pop culture in any kind of way, but he was, he was there in a strange way. You know, like if you talk about somebody who is like hanging out with Stockhausen, influential on, uh, the Velvet Underground, influential on cinema, influential on Sonic Youth and the Yes Man and sort of discovered Mike Kelly, you know, it's sort of like, well, who's, who's that person? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who connects all these little dots. And so so there was that, and that that he's similar for sort of bringing all these different nodes together. And Tony was just sort of like, kind of so ahead of the curve, you know, that people didn't even know there was a curve.
0: Well, I think that is a, a beautiful uh, note to end it on. Um, t- uh, Tyler Hubby's new documentary is Tony Conrad, Completely in the Present. And Brennan, could you remind us uh, where and when it is playing I know it's yeah. In, it's in um,
2: Haven. and do we have time for one more question?
0: Uh, of course. Oh About, yeah. Yeah. Um, By uh, all yeah. Means. <laughs> okay.
2: Uh, um, it t- it's playing tonight, Thursday, uh, June twenty ninth uh, at Lyric Hall, seven o'clock. Uh, it's just ten dollars at, at the door, and um, yeah, we're super excited. Um, and uh, yeah, I wanted to ask Tyler what's what's next for the movie and for you.
1: Uh, well, the movie is kind of still cruising around. Uh, we just screened in Switzerland, and uh, I think we're, we're going to be showing in New Zealand. We've been showing in Australia. It's kind of moving all around the world slowly. We're putting together a really big event in Berlin in December that's going to be somewhat similar to the event that we did in Los Angeles, where we had uh, Henry Rollins and Tony Arsler and Kim Gordon on stage doing different things. Uh, so we're putting together an event in Berlin on December 1st, a venue and guests to be announced, but it's going to be very, very cool and very noisy. Uh, and that's been kind of what we've been doing a lot with with, uh, with the film is touring and doing concerts in, in, in collaboration with it. And it's been fun to see how the film has sort of functioned as a generative force for other artists. When we did a preview in Tokyo, Jim O'Rourke, wrote uh, uh, an original work to to debut at the screening. Uh, And Tony Arsler and Kim Gordon collaborated on a sound and visual piece that they created for the Los Angeles screening. Kim Gordon's touring that around now. So it's kind of fun to see how the film has kind of inspired people to start making stuff. You know, that's a word I hear a lot, especially from a lot of creative people, is that they find the film really inspiring. And they want to go make stuff. uh,
2: I agree. after,
1: After seeing it. And that's really the best outcome I could have hoped for, because I think that's really sort of what Tony's spirit was really all about is don't look at me. Don't ask me, you know, you go make something. He didn't want to be any voice of authority. He wanted you to figure it out on your own. Uh, and uh, as far as what's next, I mean, there's all kinds of things that are coming up, but I can't talk about them. <laughs> I know what that's like.
0: <laughs> um, Tyler, uh, is, there, is there anywhere our listeners can go to learn more about uh, this movie, Tony Conrad, or, or any other things that you work on? Is you have a website or a Facebook page you want to direct people yeah, to? Yeah, there's
1: a website and a Facebook page. The website is probably ground for everything, just TonyConradMovie.com. And uh, there's all kinds of stuff there, pictures from all the events around the world and uh, screening links for stuff that's coming up and reviews and media stuff and uh, even some links to outtakes and things like that. And then, you know, you can link to the Facebook page where we're annoyingly updating uh, all the time. (laughs) Uh, It's all there. Um, Yeah, come come check it out. You know, we're still... We're still touring the world and screening in the, the oddest of places from grand theaters to, uh, anarchist pop-ups. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well we will post a link to tonyconradmovie.com at this show's website deepfocusradio.com and i'll also post some links to previous interviews with brendan and uh any links to danny says is there anything else you want to plug before we close we have no, the, the no just this
2: film tonight it's Excellent. wonderful and it's an honor to have it tyler so thank you Yeah, for go see it in the
1: theater where you can see it loud
2: <laughs> yep it'll, great sound system at lyric hall so it will be loud
1: yeah. Well, yeah, that's, that'll be good.
0: Yeah. Tyler, Harvey, Brennan, Toller, thank you so much for coming on the show and chatting about Tony Conrad. Thank you, thank you. All right, you can find a complete archive of Deep Focus episodes at Deep Focus Radio.